my wife and I went to see a counselor to get some help about how we could help some of our children. Some of our children were struggling with very strong emotions where they would completely freeze and give up in certain situations. And whenever that would happen, we always wanted to help them. We wanted to enter in and parent them. And we would say, it's not so bad. It's really not as bad as you think it is. Come along with me. We can do this together. And we tried to help, but it wasn't helping. When we spoke truth and told them, it's not scary. What you're afraid of isn't true. It's not as bad as you think. It didn't help. What we were actually doing was degrading trust in our relationship with these children. And it wasn't until this counselor helped us to learn how to respond to that differently that we started making a difference. She taught us what in the psychology counseling world they call affect matching. In the Bible, they call it weeping with those who weep. Was simply learning how to reflect back to the children the strength of emotion they were communicating. And we didn't want to do that at first because we were afraid it would endorse their false perspective. It's like, I don't want them to think that it's okay to believe that things are a lot worse than they really are. That's not true. And the counselor helped us to see you don't have to endorse their false perspective. All you have to do is recognize the existence of their strong feelings. And she taught us how to say, oh my goodness, you are so upset right now, aren't you? Wow, I can see it on your face. I can see it in your eyes. I can see it in your body. You are so upset. And it was when I realized I didn't have to endorse the false perspective in order to acknowledge the existence of the strong feelings. And as we did that, they started to trust us. Okay, now you understand how hard this is for me. Now I can trust you to help me with it. Friends, don't be threatened by strong emotions. Strong emotions are a normal part of suffering. When we get scared, we begin to say stupid things. And in our fear, because we're afraid, we don't know what to say when people have strong emotions, when they're suffering deeply, we get scared and we begin to say stupid things. And in our fear, we forget their need for kindness. Don't withhold kindness. The cost is far too great. That's the first cost. The second cost of withholding kindness is that we forsake the fear of the Almighty. Chapter 6, starting at verse 14. He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. My brothers are treacherous as a torrent bed, as torrential streams that pass away, which are dark with ice and where the snow hides itself. When they melt, they disappear. When it is hot, they vanish from their place. The caravans turn aside from their course. They go up into the waste and perish. The caravans of Tima look. The travelers of Sheba hope. They are ashamed because they were confident. They come there and are disappointed. For now, for you have now become nothing. You see my calamity and are afraid. Have I said, make me a gift? Or from your wealth, offer a bribe for me? Or deliver me from the adversary's hand? Or redeem me from the hand of the ruthless? This stanza presents an interlude for us between his defense of Eliphaz's third and second charges, and then after this, he'll defend against the first charge. But here in this interlude, the thesis is in the first verse. In fact, it's his thesis for the whole speech. He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. 
This is his cry for help. He just wants kindness from his friends. He cares about his friends. He doesn't want them to forsake the fear of God. How does that work? How does withholding kindness mean that you have forsaken the fear of the Almighty? Job explains that with the imagery that follows in verses 15 and the next few verses, where he says that my brothers are as treacherous as a torrent bed. A torrent bed was a temporary creek or river that was formed when ice that had been up in the mountains melts during the spring thaw, and it runs down the mountain and forms these temporary creeks and rivers where there's lots of water in the springtime during the thaw when you don't need the water. But when you hit the heat of summer and you are at your thirstiest, you go there and it has dried up and there's nothing left. He says, that is you. Verse 21, for you have now become nothing. You see my calamity and are afraid. His friends are the torrent beds. Job wants refreshment, but he can't find it when he needs it. He wants kindness from his friends. He wants them to listen, to understand. But instead, verses 22 and 23, their gift to him is not kindness. Their gift to him is to try to solve his problems. He says, I've never asked a gift from you. I did not ask you to deliver me. I did not ask you to redeem me from the hand of the ruthless. I just want kindness. The point is this, friends. When we try to fix every problem in people's lives, we are trying to take God's place. God is the one who delivers God is the one who redeems, and yes, absolutely, God gives us a role to play. And often, the role God has for us is to extend kindness to people who suffer. But we know better. And so we freely distribute our gifts of advice to people who aren't asking for it. How does this apply? There is a time to help people who suffer by fixing their problems. And that time to fix their problems usually comes when they ask you to help with their problems. But there also is a time to help people by not fixing their problems, but by listening to them. And that time is when they're still in process trying to figure out their problems, their suffering. Now, Job didn't actually have a nail in his head like the woman in the video, but he had arrows in his soul. And like the guy in the video, his friends just needed to listen and not try to fix the problem. And I don't want to distract from the point of this text by focusing on all the exceptions, but I do want to mention, just for the sake of clarity, it's worth mentioning that wisdom knows the appropriate times for fixing problems. There are times to help without being asked. For example, sharing the gospel with someone. They're not going to ask you to do that, but they have a big problem that we should help. Saving somebody's life, protecting the innocent. There are times when you will have to offer help even if you're not asked. But the focus here in this text is not 
on the time to fix. It's on the time not to fix. So that's where we're going to focus. <clears throat> so that's the second cost, is that we forsake the fear of the Almighty. Third, we raise defenses. We raise defenses. These last, this last section of chapter 6. Job says, teach me and I will be silent. Make me understand how I have gone astray. How forceful are upright words, but what does reproof from you reprove? Do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? You would even cast lots over the fatherless and bargain over your friend. But now be pleased to look at me, for I will not lie to your face. Please turn. Let no injustice be done. Turn now. My vindication is at stake. Is there any injustice on my tongue? Cannot my palate discern the cause of calamity? Here, Job, in this section, he's remarkable. Verse 24, he's still teachable. He's open to hearing specific charges about his wrongdoing. He says, teach me and I will be silent. Make me understand how I have gone astray. And this is his response to Eliphaz's first charge in chapter 4. Eliphaz's charge had been, Job, you're guilty. And Job said, okay, if I'm guilty, please tell me how am I guilty? Eliphaz's problem was not the fact that he confronted Job with his guilt. Eliphaz's problem was that he had nothing to confront Job with except an ideology, a gut reaction, and a killer instinct. He did not have specific observations of wrongdoing or moral failure in Job's life. So far, Eliphaz has rebuked only Job's words and not his character. Verse 26, Job says, Do you think that you can reprove words? There's no point to that because the speech of a despairing man is wind. Here's what kindness is, friends. Don't take everything people say at face value. How does this apply to us? Showing kindness to people in suffering means offering them lots of freedom and grace because as they speak, they won't get everything right. They won't be perfectly precise. They won't be theologically accurate. They might even say some things that make you extremely uncomfortable. Things like, God's hand in my life is like a poison arrow. He shoves it down my throat and I cannot digest the food he has given to me. That would make me very uncomfortable. And showing kindness to that person means listening to what they have to say, and then listening some more. It means asking follow-up questions to help them explain things. It means picking up on what they say and asking for examples and clarifications, not jumping to conclusions, not correcting every false impression, not correcting every accusation they have made, not correcting their words of wind. Let them expel the wind. Offering that kind of kindness lowers their defenses because it gives them reason to trust you, 
that you care, that you understand. It gives them the freedom to let it all out. It gives them the freedom to figure out what they're really thinking and feeling and to process it through. And it's amazing because often a godly sufferer will correct himself as he goes if you give him or her the freedom to just process. If you listen well, you won't have to do very much correction. But withholding this kind of kindness comes at a tremendous cost because it communicates to the sufferer that they cannot trust you enough to be honest around you, which means that they will either get mad or sad. If they get mad, they will blow up at you. That was the first point. We inflame the volatile emotions. If they get sad, they will take it inside and hide it. That's the raised defenses that I'm talking about. If we withhold kindness, we raise their defenses. But look at what Job does. This is remarkable. Verse 28. But now be pleased to look at me, for I will not lie to your face. Job trusts them anyway. At this point... He chooses to let them in. And I'll give you a little forward looking. He's not going to do that forever. By the end of these three cycles of speeches, he will be wishing for God's eternal judgment to fall on them. He's not going to trust them for much longer. But for now, he still does. He says, look me in the eye. I won't lie to you. Turn aside from your foolish accusations and be kind for me. Avoid injustice. Hear my vindication. And let me be perfectly honest with you about how I feel right now. That's where he goes in chapter 7. So, when we withhold kindness, we raise defenses. Number four. The fourth cost of withholding kindness is that we fuel hopelessness. With chapter 7, Job gets even more vulnerable than he has been to this point in the book. He lets his friends in on exactly how he's feeling and how their lack of kindness has only made things worse. And so here's what he has to say in verses 1 through 10. Has not a man a hard service on earth? And are not his days like the days of a hired hand? Like a slave who longs for the shadow and like a hired hand who looks for his wages. So I am allotted months of emptiness and nights of misery are apportioned to me. When I lie down, I say, when shall I arise? But the night is long and I am full of tossing till the dawn. My flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardens, then breaks out afresh. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and come to their end without hope. Remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. The eye of him who sees me will behold me no more. While your eyes are on me, I shall be gone. As the cloud fades and vanishes, so he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. He returns no more to his house, nor does his place know him anymore. In this section, Job offers a complaint about his life, verses 1 through 6, and a prediction of his death in verses 7 through 10. First is his complaint about life. Verse 1, he feels like his life is a life of hard slavery to a harsh master. He can't wait for the relief of the end of the day when he can get out of the sun. However... When he gets that relief, he doesn't really get it because he can't sleep at night. Verse 4. 
Verse 5, he tells us a bit about his physical calamity that he's suffering. His skin appears to form calluses, but then sores break out all over again. Verse 6, despite all this hard slavery, time still seems to fly. Day in, day out, nothing ever changes. And at the end of his days, he still has no hope. This is the essence of his life that he's letting them in on. I have no hope. Therefore, in verse 7, my life is a breath. He feels like he'll never again see good. And verse 8, those who can see him won't see him forever. The time is almost here when he will be gone. And I want to point something out that's important in understanding this chapter. There's a major shift in verse 8. Because up until now, from the beginning of chapter 6 to this point, in Hebrew, all of the pronouns and verbs have been plural. Whenever he says, you do this, you do that, you do this, you do that, it's a plural you. He's talking about his three friends. Y'all do this, y'all do that, y'all are withholding kindness from me, y'all please listen to me, that kind of thing. But here in verse 8, the pronouns shift. Suddenly, they are singular. He says, while you're singular, while your eyes are on me, I shall be gone. It's possible that he's singling Eliphaz out from among the other friends, or it's possible that something else is going on. Just keep your eyes open, keep your ears open as we go. We must read on to see. Verses 9 and 10, he says, once I die, I won't come back. Back in chapter 3, he had wished for death. Now here, he predicts his death to be imminent. How does this apply to us? Severe suffering produces its fair share of hopelessness such that Job says I am without hope and I'm going to die soon and failing to show kindness to those who suffer only makes it worse we fuel that hopelessness because when we don't show kindness we convince them that there is no relief for them when people try to fix the unfixable problems that makes sufferers feel used Back in verse 30 of chapter 6, he said, you would cast lots over the fatherless and bargain over your friend. He feels used. And sometimes the greatest kindness is to listen to the hopelessness and weep with them over it. The greatest pain in our suffering often comes when we feel lonely. We groan alone. We have no one to share our pain with us. And a lack of kindness from our friends confirms that there is no one to share the pain. And this loneliness that the sufferer feels leads to the greatest cost of all. Because when we withhold kindness, we inflame volatile emotions, we forsake the fear of the Almighty, we raise defenses, and we fuel hopelessness, and in the end, we put ourselves in a position of being unable to help where it counts the most. In this last section... Let's listen to Job in his moment of deepest need when he's willing to be brutally honest about his feelings and about what matters the most. Here's the real issue in his life. Let's not miss it. Verse 11. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea or a sea monster that you... Pronouns are still singular, that you set a guard over me. 
When I say, my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that I would choose strangling and death rather than my bones. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are a breath. What is man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him? You visit him every morning and test him every moment. How long will you not look away from me nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit? If I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I shall lie in the earth. You will seek me, but I shall not be. Job takes off all restraint from his words at this point. Verse 11, I will not restrain my mouth. He speaks forth his spirit's anguish. He speaks forth his soul's bitterness. And he comes down to statements like verse 14. You scare me with dreams. You terrify me with visions. I think it's obvious to us at this point that he is not talking to Eliphaz any longer. This is the first time in the book so far that Job speaks directly to God. He said in chapter 6, verse 4, that the terrors of God are arrayed against me. And now he says, you terrify me with visions. In verse 15, he says, I would choose strangling and death rather than living life in this bag of bones. What a terribly raw sentiment to express. In verse 16, he gives his summary and his prayer request. Imagine attending a prayer meeting with this guy where he says, here's my summary. I loathe my life and I don't want to live forever. And here is my prayer request. Would you please pray for me that God would leave me alone? He says it twice. Leave me alone in verse 16 and then three verses later. Verse 19, he says, how long will you keep breathing down my neck? You will not leave me alone so that I have even time to swallow my spit. I have no room to make any movement. What do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Why do you make me your mark? Verse 21, you, God, will keep seeking me, but I will die soon and then I'll be out of your sights forever. How does this apply to us? Friends, Job teaches us that what matters the most is his relationship with God. This gets very personal between him and God. And that's what matters most. When we withhold kindness from our friends, we miss this central issue, their relationship with God. And many of us who suffer, we don't know how to suffer well. Because we don't know how to be honest and how to process our feelings. We don't know how to lament. 
like Job does here. And extending kindness to one another often means weeping with the sufferer. It means letting the sufferer know that it's okay to cry out. Extending kindness may even mean showing them how to do this in a way that moves them toward God and not away from God. Because you see, Job is talking directly to God. He's not saying, I want nothing more to do with God ever again. He's saying, God, I'm not going to hold back from you anymore. When I have friends who go through suffering and I send them sympathy cards, especially at the loss of a loved one, I used to try to find encouraging sentiments to write to them. Things like, God is with you. May you remember his love. May you see his good hand through your loss. And depending on the person and the situation, those might be very helpful things to say. But actually, much more commonly these days, I actually write things like, I can't imagine how you must be feeling. If I were you, I might feel like... And then I quote a passage like Job 7 or Lamentations 3 or Psalm 13. All these laments we have in Scripture. And then I'll end with, I'm praying for you and I love you, brother or sister. This is because in my sadness, when I've gone through suffering, I've been most encouraged when people enter in. When they don't try to fix it, they don't try to make it sound like a good experience. They just acknowledge the pain. And such people have taught me how to grieve in a way that moves me toward God and not away from him because they've given me a vocabulary for how to complain in a godly way. And we can do that for each other. Job here says some pretty harsh words to God. And I had the privilege of hearing Uh, a man named Liam Gallagher preach on this passage and he said something I thought was very helpful. He said that we are rarely willing to be honest with God in prayer. Our prayers are glib and sanitized, especially in public. We need laments like this to give us language to use in our dark nights of the soul. These are the words of a believer, not a backslider. Friends, what makes all the difference is that Job is taking his complaint directly to God. It is an act of faith to do so. He believes he'll get some answers. This is not a rebellious or angry rejection of God. And eventually, what will happen is that Job will argue, cajole, and preach his way toward the truth. He'll change his mind. He'll adjust his thinking along the way. And so we must learn to lament and process these kinds of feelings if we're going to tackle these difficult emotions and grope gradually toward the truth in our suffering. If you ignore extreme emotions, you'll never get on the path to truth. And so Job, the innocent sufferer here, taking his fight to God, the one who lacks kindness from his friends, he's here to picture for us a far greater sufferer who also lacked kindness from his friends. 
The Lord Jesus, who began much higher than Job ever did, and he sank far lower than Job ever sank, and the night before Jesus died, he asked for kindness from his three friends, but they fell asleep while he was busy wrestling with God through his worst feelings toward God. Hebrews 5 verse 7 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. That reverence means his fear of God. The one who was Jesus' enemy launching poison arrows against him because of our sin that had been put on him, that same God became Jesus' friend and heard his complaints and showed him the kindness of resurrection, vindicating his innocence. So friends, please learn from Job the cost of withholding kindness from a friend. And then come to Jesus and see the truest friend you will ever have. The one who died so that God's kindness would never be withheld from you. There in the face of Jesus, there at the foot of the cross, you'll realize that suffering doesn't always make sense to us. And sometimes the more we try to figure it out, the worse we make it. But we can fear the God who is up to something bigger than we can imagine. We can trust him to do whatever he considers good and right, and then we can go on our way extending kindness to those who are in pain. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for Jesus and for giving our suffering purpose because of him. Thank you, Lord, for not withholding your kindness from us. Please help us to reflect your kindness to others who suffer, that we may avoid these costs of inflaming volatile emotions, forsaking the fear of the Almighty, raising defenses, fueling hopelessness, and missing the real issue of their relationship with you. Lord, please use these things to draw us closer to you. Lord, please be our vision, whatever happens. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please stand.